Warning. Explicit science starts now. All right. Uh, welcome to Explicit Science. I am one half your host this week, Ryan LeBee, and with me is my high school buddy, Winston Carr, on his hello. way to becoming a physicist. Say hello, Winston. Why hello. Why hello. <laughs> and... Uh, should we talk about a little bit about ourselves, if uh, since no one knows us? I suppose probably we should. All right, you go first, my friend. Uh, all right, I'm going for my PhD in physics, and I'm a student at Michigan State, and I'm interested in pretty much all things science and philosophy. All right, and I am Ryan LeBee. Uh, I am in the Air Force, a new father, and I'm a science enthusiast i uh, have no formal background but uh pretty much also love anything scientific history related philosophical and all that jazz the uh news topic that i think we want to start with we've already been talking about it a little bit uh is that scientists believe that they might have proven that time travel is impossible so sorry out there to anyone who wanted to be like marty mcfly all right, well, uh, according to Discover News, Hong Kong physicists say they have proven a single photon cannot travel faster than the speed of light, and this demonstrates that time travel is impossible. So, that's depressing. Einstein claimed that the speed of light was the traffic law of the universe, or in a simple language, nothing can travel faster than light, the university said on its website. Yeah, it seems what this was was a response to a study 10 years ago where somebody thought they went faster than light. But I think what's going on here is these uh, researchers have proven that the result was flawed. So they've kind of contradicted it, so we're back to the firm belief that you can't go faster than the speed of light, which I I don't see much way around. It pops up in too many areas of physics as just a constraint. Well, for for all of us nerds out there, the only thing that this really means for us is it scares us that time travel is impossible. So... I think there's other ways around that, uh, a lot of theories around it anyways, like using wormholes yeah. and black holes. and Yeah, there's a lot of different ideas out there, and time will show. I'm, you know, humans, we're, we're creative. I'm sure we'll find a way. Oh, yeah. As for the time travel, it's, it's looking like uh, one more nail in the coffin. <laughs> I don't want to let it go that easily just yet. I want to go back and play Johnny Be Good at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. All right? That's what I want to do. We don't judge you here. <laughs> it, it is possible it just ends up to be a fixed law. That nothing can travel faster than the speed of light? Yeah, and we just never find a way around it. Be, it's kind of a boring end. The nearest star is Alpha Centauri, and that's, what, 16, I think 16 light years away or 6, one or the other. I think it's Watch only. Six. I think it's six. Six light years away, so it it really quick turns into if you want to get very far in the universe, you got to go fast, right? And then if we don't, I mean, we have to find some kind of alternative way, really, because uh, just going fast and approaching the speed of light, relativity does weird things, and then it just kind of gets complicated. Then I don't. I just don't know what, how we'll get around it, because once we start traveling fast at relativistic speeds, as you near the speed of light, then you have to worry about things like time dilation. Which, why don't you explain in case someone doesn't know what time dilation is? Well, the faster you're going, your clock, relative to things around you, slows down. So the classic example of this was that Einstein put out, I believe, was the twin paradox. If you had two twins born on Earth... And then say when they're 20 years old, one gets on a spaceship and goes to a planet 10 light years away and then comes back. So he's traveled 20 light years. And if he travels at like half the speed of light, then it takes him 40 years. So when he gets back, his brother is 60 years older. His brother would now be 80. But... When you travel at those fast speeds, there's time dilation. Things slow down relative to you. So for the one that's on the spaceship, 40 years will not have passed. It will be closer to, I don't know the exact numbers, I'd have to work it out. But uh, he would have only, instead of being 80, he'll be like 70 or 60. 
And I know this sounds crazy, but they've proven this. It's it's a real effect. Uh, they, the military took spaceships, or uh, not spaceships, jet ships, jets, you know, you Air Force people. <laughs> yeah, jet, I got it. Atom- they had some atomic clocks synchronized, and they put one on Earth and one on the jet, and they flew at very fast speeds, not even close to half the speed of light, but flew around the Earth several times at very uh, high speeds. And when they got done, the clocks were out of sync. Right, I remember that. I mean, I don't... So if you think about it, if I mean, even if we don't find some alternative way of traveling, if we stick with just classical going fast without finding some type of wormhole solution or something, you know, you quickly end up to things where you went to one planet, came back home, and now everybody around you is aged. So if you're traveling a long way over the galaxy, you'll never come back to anyone being alive. Theory all seems to indicate that there's no trivial way of going faster than the speed of light. It's a fixed constant throughout. It kind of it raises questions about how much, we could, how much we can really expand over the universe. Right. Well, then there's always that theory of uh, setting up a spaceship with generations of people to just age on the spaceship and travel to the nearest galaxy. I, you know, I'm populating the world or the uh, universe sounds all right to me. I think terraforming Mars is where it's at, man. Yeah, Mars seems like a first step. It's nearby. Yeah, you saw the uh, the news. I think it was just in the last week since we're on news topics. Uh, they think they might have found salty water on Mars that is seasonal. Yeah, I did see that. I did. It seems like for a while now they've thought that definitely there was water, there was fluid. I mean, you can see paths where fluid was running. So I, they're getting closer and closer. And I'm, you know, they found it on the moon as well in a frozen form. I'm pretty sure the uh, deep impact, the one that just crashed into the moon to dig into the surface and throw things out. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it found frozen ice underneath the surface as well. Well, ice is frozen. It's redundant. <laughs> I'll edit that out. Hello. Hey, hello, Dr. Tyson. How are you, sir? Good. Good morning. Good morning. I'm told you're a new dad. Is that correct? Oh, I am. Thank you for uh, asking. Like spanking brand new dad. Oh, brand spanking new. Uh, Came home yesterday. Wow. Well, congratulations. First time? Uh, Yes. Yes, it is. Wow. I know. I appreciate it. Congratulations. Thank you. I have some advice for you, if I may. Oh, absolutely. It's advice no one else will tell you. Go ahead. Okay. You're going to be taking pictures at every moment with your digital camera, amassing thousands of photos. Your motivation to take pictures will likely be driven by your interest in what new things your your child, your infant into toddlerhood, into childhood, has accomplished. First steps, first words, first meal with a utensil. So the effort will be to sort of chronicle that, and that'll be what drives you. However, what you should not lose sight of, and 100% of everyone does, is that the picture you take is the youngest your child will ever thenceforth be. Whereas you're viewing it as the oldest that your child ever was. So if you view it, however, as it is the youngest your child will ever thenceforth be, then you'll embrace the moment for how young it is, not for how old it is. And it's a much deeper emotion to see your child as young than to see your child as old. This is what I can share with you. I appreciate it. That's uh, definitely better advice than anything I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) What'll happen is you'll look at pictures later on and you say, oh, they were so young back then. That's not what you were thinking. You would think, oh, look how old they are. Look how much they can accomplish. And you don't want it to be too late to embrace the fact that they're young. That's all. All right. I appreciate it. But for the next year, you'll be changing 3,000 diapers. Uh, I'm already on four and it's only been a day. So... (laughs) Just to start off, I guess I should give you a, a little introduction, like you need one. You're a man that shouldn't need one. If anyone hasn't heard of you, uh, they must be living under a rock. <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah, I'm joined today by Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, you're a world-renowned astrophysicist, curator of the Hayden Planetarium, author, frequent guest of The Daily Show, Colbert Report. You have your own show, Nova Science Now. You have your own radio talk show. You pretty much do everything. Is there anything you don't do? Well, it's it, uh, it, the secret is cloning. See, that's, <laughs> that's how I managed it. <laughs> no, it's uh, my... What I, if I were to rank these activities, what I enjoy doing most is writing. Oh, yeah. And because that's the, that gives me the chance to very carefully lay out a scientific idea or a concept that I might then share with the public. It's the writing that actually informs all of my, my verbal public work, the speeches, the radio and television. Because the writing forces me to organize ideas and thoughts in a coherent way that makes pedagogical sense. And that's what I draw upon for all these phrases and sound bites that I'm spontaneously required to deliver as the media comes by asking what's going on with 2012 or a new black hole that's discovered or the end of the space program. For people who may not know, because I mean, I honestly, I don't even know if I know exactly what does an astrophysicist do? Well, what does that job entail? Yeah, it's, it, it doesn't require a heavy-duty definition. Okay. It, not like, you know, a, a renal surgeon, you know, I mean... Right. <laughs> they don't operate on your heart, right? They right. operate on your kidneys, but you have to say that. An astrophysicist studies everything that's outside of Earth's atmosphere. Oh, wow. Which is essentially the entire universe. So the asteroids and planets and comets and stars and gas clouds and black holes and galaxies and the universe and all the laws of physics that that enable us to understand and describe what's going on in the past, present, and future. So that's the astrophysicist. Is there a specialized field within within that, or is it? There are many, but we we all speak to each other. Unlike some other disciplines like chemistry or even biology, where the field is very fractured, where people, for example, there are cell biologists who only publish in Cell Biology magazine. Uh, journals, and I don't know how much time they spend reading other biology journals. So there, there's the risk that in those professions, there are ideas that can be unifying, or or ideas that can take a new point of view by virtue of combining more than one dis, uh, subdiscipline. In astrophysics, we really all speak to each other, but in it, you can separate out cosmology. People worry about the origin of the universe. There's what we call extragalactic astrophysicists. These are people who look at galaxies beyond our own. They're galactic astrophysicists, people who study the Milky Way. And then there are the planet folk who have almost come a sep become a separate species because when they study their subjects, they actually just send probes there. <laughs> I wonder what's going on on, Mars, on the Martian surface. Let's go there. Well, if you can go there... You know, it's not really astronomy in the classical sense. Astronomy is the most humble of all fields because you can't actually interact with what it is you're studying. Right. All you do is sit and wait for the light to come to you, and then you invoke very clever means of analyzing that light and deducing the nature of the universe. So the planetary science division of my field is a very well-organized community that have their own conferences and they do publish in their own journals where did your enthusiasm for science come from was that instilled by your parents or to just develop on its own yeah it was on its own but but through i mean via my parents my parents as a kid i have a brother and a sister we all went to various um, institutions of uh, uh, cultural institutions of the city new york city this is and each weekend, we'd make a different trip to the art museum, to the science museum, to the natural history museum, to to the opera, to Broadway musicals, to the ball game. Every weekend, we did something different as a family, exposing we, the kids, to all the ways that adults make a living in this world. And when I was nine, one of those trips was to the Hayden Planetarium, my local planetarium. And that's when I became starstruck. I, I think the universe called me, actually, out there, <laughs> just minding my own business in the darkened, domed room, and <laughs> stars come out, and I was hooked ever since. And I wrote about this in my memoir, The Sky is Not the Limit, 
adventures of an urban astrophysicist. I have to admit, I haven't had a chance to read all your books. I'm uh, making my way through uh, a black hole. I just started it uh, last night. A black hole, yeah. Well, welcome to death by a black hole. To that. Mm-hmm. What are some ways that you think uh, we could make the science could become more popular in the public view? Because it doesn't seem like it's not like the cool thing to do anymore to do science. Yeah, I think the issue is not getting kids interested in science, which is the most common kind of question people ask. The issue is getting adults interested in science because it's adults who vote and it's adults who control the country. They wield the resources. They are who is our members of Congress. Children don't serve in Congress. Adults do. And the level of rampant science illiteracy is staggering in the adult population, not only of the world, but especially lately in America. So I think the issue is not simply <coughs> teaching people science. That's the obvious answer, but it, I don't think it's even the best answer. I think the best answer is getting people to appreciate the methods and tools of science and what kind of brain wiring a scientifically curious mind has. So in other words, if someone makes a claim and they assert, for example, that rubbing two crystals together will heal your ailment, if you're, if you're of a science mind, doesn't mean you have to be a scientist, but if you're, if, if you have, if you're scientifically literate, your response would not be either of the obvious extremes. One extreme is, great, give me those crystals, give me as many as I can buy. Well, that's just, you're gullible. The other extreme is, oh, you're full of it. This, this crystals, everybody knows crystals can't heal anything, get out of here. Well, I don't think it's more, I don't think it's, it's, it's harder to believe that crystals might have healing power than it is that the entire universe once occupied the volume of a marble. So, yet I can tell you one is true and the other isn't. So, if, but if you know neither, then a scientifically curious mind will start asking questions. What are the crystals made of? By what mechanism do they heal you? What ailments do they heal? How has it been tested? Who has it been tested on? How long have this been in place? What? And by the time you ask all these questions, the person walks away in tears because, in fact, they won't have answers to those questions, not in the case of the crystals, at least. And so the scientifically curious mind has, has a self-defense mechanism against charlatans that run amok in society. And those charlatans can include people who are outright uh, fraudulent to those who are unwitting purveyors of misinformation in the name of science. Uh, I've heard you mention you don't, a lot of people don't get a chance to ever talk to an astrophysicist, so if you do, you better get all your questions out of the way. That's right. When I talk to people that uh, even I grew up with, they uh, might be religious or whatever it is, they don't believe in the Big Bang Theory. Obviously, I get it. But what what comes before that? How, how do... Is there a theory, or how do you explain what comes before the Big no, we Bang? We don't, because we don't know what came before. Are there any no, theories? We have top people working on it, but <laughs> there's uh, there's no data that yeah. we know that we either know exists or know how to acquire that will give us insight into what was around before the Big Bang. So it's a scientific frontier right now. Okay. Um, all right, I, I kind of want to ask but you... The question combined a comment referencing religion and but religion is religion if you're going to ask what was around before the big bang and i tell you what we don't know it's fine but if your next question is you're trying to connect these two concepts religion and before the big bang that's a separate question than simply asking me what was around before the big bang Uh, i'm sorry for uh, phrasing it that way it seems uh whenever i talk about it with people that i know it seems they go hand in hand and i know they shouldn't i don't think religion well if they want to so, so if they go hand in hand, it would typically go, well, something must have been around before then, therefore, you know, it must have been God. But that is, you know, for centuries, people who are religious and are eager to reveal the hand of God in the operations of the universe have always been quick to assert the presence of God where science has yet to tread. That's, that's, and it's called the God of the gaps argument. So... So just because I can't tell you what was around before the Big Bang 
does not then require that there was a God that created the universe any more than it required that God was physically moving around the planets at the time before we understood how the planets moved in the night sky. We could track them. We didn't understand it. The planet would go forward and then slow down and go backwards. We've got a word for that. It's called retrograde. Astrophysicist Neil Tyson. These loop-de-loops, no one understood this. And it was widely recognized that the heavens were where God lived, of course. God doesn't live under your feet. God lives above you in the sky. If that is the heavenly realm as opposed to the terrestrial realm, then it's obvious why you don't understand how it works because that's the work of God. And the mortal mind can't understand the divine mind. But then Newton comes around, writes down an equation. Now we can all predict and fully understand what the planet orbits are doing. And so that removed God from that equation. And so God kept bouncing around to where science had yet to tread. And right now, we don't know what was around before the Big Bang. And the people who don't read history, the people who don't think about the consequence of the question, are quick to then say, well, God must have been there. And you just show them the history books and have them recognize the folly of that approach to our ignorance. It has never led to anything other than to backpedaling once the answer was discovered. That's a great answer. A lot of scientists speak very enthusiastic about the Large Hadron Collider built by CERN. I was just curious, as a scientist, could you maybe discuss what the importance or the significance of it is? Like, what kind of uh, research will come from it? Yeah, in astrophysics and in physics, there are two things you can do that guarantee that you'll make discoveries. One of them is build a larger telescope. Another one is build a larger particle accelerator. The larger telescope will see things dimmer than anyone has seen before, and there are always discoveries lurking just beyond the detection limits of your previous hardware. And with the particle accelerator, you will be probing the state of matter at energies never before reached. And when you do this, you're bound to discover something new. And so we were, we were slated to play this role with what at the time was called the Superconducting Super Collider, funded in the late 1980s, and then got his budget canceled in the early 90s. And this, this uh, so we would have been on the forefront of the particle accelerators. But once it got canceled, interesting thing about science is it doesn't matter who does it. And the, the nations who do it are those who embrace the frontier of scientific discovery. The fact that we no longer have access to space, we no longer have the largest particle accelerator, and there's a lot of things in the we no longer list that I could give, is evidence that we're simply fading on the world stage. It's not a cliff that we walk off. It's just our significance in the rest of the world will become less and less real and meaningful. So it's Europe now that's making all the that will be making the next generation of discoveries about the basic properties of matter in the universe. Dr. Tyson, before I let you go, I want to I want to thank you very much for uh, speaking with us and well, uh, happy to serve. <laughs> and also, I've been asking. Uh, I, I have had one other guest. I had a science comedian Brian Mallow on, and I spoke with him. I think he's, I think I'm gonna do. Guy. He's a good guy. Glad you had him. Yeah, he's he's great to talk to. He's a very funny guy. Um, I've been asking, you know, him and yourself. Uh, before I let you go, I was gonna ask: Is there any little uh, piece of trivia or a little tidbit you'd like to share before you go? Something to broaden our minds, maybe? Yeah, I think my favorite. Well, I have many favorites, but if you'd want a tidbit, is the fact that in one centimeter of your lower colon. There lives and works more microbes than the total number of human beings who have ever been born. Wow. And so we, in our hubris, like to think of ourselves in charge of the world. But in fact, to a bacterium, we're just a host at a convenient place to thrive, a convenient dark place, anaerobically sustained in our digestive tract. And if they don't like what you're doing to them, 
they let you know immediately. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, deciding who's in charge is a matter of point of view. (laughs) Well, Dr. Tyson, I appreciate it, and uh, it's been a pleasure to be able to speak with you. Okay, well, keep up the work, and enjoy being a dad. Thank you. I will. There'll be, you know, I don't know how many more kids you might have. Here's the rule on having two kids, because the one kid is going to take up 100% of your time. And so the rule is, if you have a second kid, it can't take up more than 100% of your time. So, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I appreciate it. That's how that works. All All right. right. You have a good day, then. You too. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Bye. Did you see uh, – oh, that is not funny. I don't know why I laugh like that. Now I feel like a dick. Uh, the chimp attack victim uh, shows off her new face. Ooh. She got a face transplant. Oh, no. You got to send me a link to this. I can't imagine. It uh, – I wouldn't kick her out of bed, but not as pretty as the first one. Now, that's just offensive. I should not have said that. I wonder if – anyone could just do this. Like, do you have to have a, be a victim of a chimpanzee attack or could you just be like, you got any extra faces laying around? I'd really like a different one. Yeah. What, there was the burn victim a while back I saw, but, uh, you know, I've seen worse looking at Walmart. I'll be honest. <laughs> Me too. Hey, we're from the South. Pretty sure. Have you seen, what is it? The people of Walmart? Oh my God. I think all of them are really from the Midwest. Oh yeah. I'm pretty sure I saw a couple of cousins on there. Oh, uh, you know, when I first came to Michigan, I, I was meeting other uh, grad students here, and they were talking about hot hot chicks. And somebody was from Florida, and they're like, "Yeah, man, I hope there's hot chicks." And I don't I don't mean like Midwestern hot. I mean like I'm from the ocean hot. And a bunch of people were like, "Yeah, I've never heard that before." And I was like, "What do you mean Midwestern hot?" I'm like, well, yeah, like a hot girl in the Midwest is good and all, but it's not like the the swimsuit tan. I live by the ocean, California hot. We don't even get our own standard of hot in the Midwest now. We're a subculture. <laughs> yeah, good for that woman, you know. Got a new face. Yeah, I don't. I didn't mean to laugh at her like that. That was fucking horrible. I can't believe oh, that. No, that's life. It just caught me off guard. It really did. The chimpanzee died. She just lost a face. <laughs> is that really what happened, or is that what happened in the new Planet of the Apes? Yeah, they movie? shot the chimpanzee. Oh, did they? Yeah, they killed it. <laughs> Jesus. They didn't even set up a trial of his peers? Uh, no. That's a shame. Well, it, it ripped off her nose, lips, eyelids, and hands. Oh, the whole face. It it ripped off her whole face and then started gnawing on her fingers. Yeah, I mean, that's... If you gotta shoot an animal, that's the time to do it. <laughs> Let's talk about that, uh, that test tube life. You saw that? Yeah, I did. What do you think about that? For people who don't know, let me uh, spool them up real quick. According to uh, the New York Times, there is a group of scientists uh, who have created, or they're trying to create, rather. I don't think they've actually created actual life, but we're going to define that here in a minute, what, what actually defines life. Anyways, they're trying to create fake life in a test tube. And so far, what they've done is created... What was it? RNA. We're, we're created of RNA and DNA. They only created RNA, yeah. but it's RNA that can re- replicate itself and evolve. So yeah, it's an interesting. I've seen this a couple times now. Uh, biologists working basically trying to see how basic they can start with, and then build up from there. I mean, anybody can start with some bacteria and grow a culture. So they're trying to see how little they can start with to kind of get an idea of how little life needs. It's good when we start exploring out there to see what to look for. Right. I think it's just uh, kind of neat, but I, I've noticed kind of the underlying tone of this this paper here from the New York Times is that uh, what actually qualifies as life when you say, oh, this is alive. Because, I mean, it's doing basically what we do anyways. It replicates itself and it evolves. Of course, it's not conscious. It's just it's reproducing. No, it's a very basic form of life. Right. That's, a, you know... What is life's a tricky question in general. How would you? I think the definition they give in the article of anything that seems to self-replicate and evolve—that's a pretty good uh, 
Well, no. Basically, what it says is no biologist can agree on what the definition of life is, but it is important or fundamental to life, the ability to evolve and adapt. But one thing that they do mention that I think is very important to for people to understand is we only have one example of life, and that's us, planet Earth. And that's not really good enough to make comparisons. You know what I mean? You can't say all life has to come up this way when all you have is one example of it. So... You know, that's why I think things like this test tube experiment are good. I mean, we just because we evolved out of a couple different compounds doesn't mean different compounds might have results as well. I mean, if I was a biologist, I'd be putting all kinds of random crap together and jolting it. <laughs> Probably wouldn't work, which is why I'm a physicist. I'm too much of a nerd to be a geneticist. I'd be just doing all kinds of weird shit. A lot of power, a lot of patience. Very Play. humble people. Playing God. Be hard not to do. When we were kids, you know, like 10 years ago, remember when they were like, we're going to map the whole human genome and you're going to be able to pick your kid's eye color and hair color? You just had a kid. Did you get to pick out a bubble sheet for that or is that crap? I, I could have, but I decided to go with the pick seven and it just uh, randomly shot out my child. So, uh, Yeah, I was always a Kino man myself. I think you can't really – obviously, you can't obviously pick – what your kid looks like nowadays, but I think there are things you can choose, and we're getting closer to that. Money. If you have the money, I think you can do a test tube. Well, mm. shit. I mean, everything is if you've got money, right? I mean, you can go oh, to yeah. space right now now as a tourist if you've got the money, if you're Lance Bass, but the average person can't. Well, he's put the money down. Has he made it up there yet? No, nobody has, but I think the first launch date isn't until like 2012 or some shit like that, but it's going to happen. I mean, we're going. People are going. Because there's money there. There's some assholes who have too much money and don't know what to do with it, and they'll spend, what is it, $200,000 or half a million dollars? Hey, no, that's good. We need those people. Any Anytime you got new technology, you know, the first people to try it out are always the rich people because when it comes out, it's expensive as crap, and usually it's buggy. So I say let the rich people buy the Blu-ray player when it first comes out or buy the HD DVD player that flops when it first comes out, and I'll sit back and wait until it becomes 50 bucks. Same way with Spaceflight. I always wait till I decide or see what porn does, and when I see what porn does, that's what, that's, the, that's the gadget I get. Porn's a big market. Entertainment in general, you can't argue with it. When they realize that prostitution in space isn't illegal yet, they will have cheap Spaceflight. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, that'll be what does it. Prostitution. It'll be space, space Vegas. No, Space Vegas. Hell yeah, Space Vegas. I'm down for that. Just big floating colony of people that are foobar. Imagine being hammered drunk in zero gravity. I want to know how many trees or weeds or whatever do we need to plant to generate enough air for one person on a plane, on like a space shuttle? You know, because air's. It turns CO2 into oxygen, and we turn oxygen into CO2. Right. So it seems to me like, you know, we're going to have to have food up there anyway. Why haven't we built a floating garden yet? That's a good question. Well, wasn't there supposed to be, I could have sworn a few years back, there was talks of uh, like a, not like a greenhouse, but something like that on the moon. Like they wanted to build something like that on the moon. General, I don't. We need a moon base. I don't know what the holdup is. There was, I don't remember if it was NASA specifically, but it was funded through the government. There was a research project in Antarctica with plants where they are growing plants and in basically like in a little encapsule. They're completely uh, like remote, autonomous. It watered. It turned on lights, but it was kind of to see can you make something insulated enough. They can automatically grow plants for in zero gravity, or not in zero gravity, in low temperatures like you would have in space. Right. I never heard much afterwards about, you know, why is this hard, and I don't get it. You're putting plants in a bubble. It seems pretty easy. Because I've always, I've always felt like that seemed like the natural way to go. If you need oxygen, and you're outputting CO2, which you don't need, and we have these great organisms here already that... Turn it around. There's, there's, Can't we find like the kudzu plant, something that's really efficient at it? 
Well, what is that fucking movie where they do that on Mars? Where it's like a guy, he's just sitting in a greenhouse, just breathing. Because they got a bunch of plants in there. I don't know. I haven't Mi- seen Mi- that Mission to Mars, I think it is. I'll have to check that out. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not a biologist. I'm going to have to meet some and ask them, like, what are you guys doing? Anything important? Tell me about these space trees. Space trees. Like, think how big of a tomato you could grow in space. The vine doesn't have to support the weight anymore. The topsy-turvy might actually work. (laughs) Topsy-turvy tomato planters in space. Holy shit, that would make a great movie. That's a prequel to uh, Attack of the Rotten Tomatoes, or Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Oh my god. Topsy-turvy. podcast, start writing the script, we're millionaires. (laughs) We gotta figure something out here. We're all over the fucking place. I know. I think we need to like get a list together for the next one of like topics ahead of time we both read. Right. Well, I think maybe we're we should just pick one topic and then just do that. And then, yeah. And then when we have three people, that'll definitely help because we can just kind of spitball off each other. But what are you doodling? Oh, I see. I'm boring you. No, I'm writing things down. Oh. Taking notes, man. That's clever. Notes. See? That's what you physicists are here for, to tell me to use notes. For- yeah, man. I keep a stack of, like, 200 pages blank next to me at all times. That's a good idea. And a beer. We're not evolving in the classical way you think of it. Well, right. A lot of it's we're, we're combating evolution. We're trying to live longer. We're having less kids. Right. Well... Uh, a lot of people, there's the argument that uh, we have stopped evolving, and we're more socially evolving now. We've almost right. stopped Darwin's evolution on, on humans. Right, it's a different type of evolution. Right. It's kind of like social evolution, or it's a knowledge revolution. And that's why I'm wondering... Ooh, I like that. Write, write, write that down. Did you just think of that? Yeah. Knowledge revolution. I'm writing that down. What if it really was... It was just like, maybe it was some simple step. Like maybe when we learned how to write, that was the first step. And then we learned, you know, it's just, it's just little things. But once you get to writing, it seems like you can build because then you can save your knowledge. Instead of being one person figuring it out, you have a collective. That's why, like, I wonder with some of these, you know, like dolphins and chimpanzees, you know, like. Why aren't we capturing chimpanzees and selective breeding them? We do it with dogs to make them look funny. Why not do it with dolphins and chimpanzees to make the smartest dolphin and chimpanzee? I'll tell you right now why. Uh, The chimpanzee is an easy, I think, uh, I could be wrong, but I really think it's an ethical reason. I think people are afraid to do that because when you think about it, when they're, what, 98%... Yeah, they're DNA. too close to us to feel good. They're too close to home. And even people who don't believe in evolution, which is ignorant, I don't I don't understand that at all, but people who don't believe in evolution they specifically frown upon it because we're playing God then, you know what I mean? And it's yeah, very close I mean, to just, home. It blows my mind, like dogs. There are so many different kinds of dogs and they look so different. And they really do kind of have different personalities, I think. And it's all from selective breeding. Oh, yeah. Plants are the same way. We cross-breed plants like mad. Well, hell, Monsanto, they make corn that you can spray Roundup on top of, and it'll kill all the weeds, but not the corn. Oh, wow. Yeah. But like the dog thing you were saying, I I was watching this, uh, I think it was Nova Science Now. They were talking about how smart are dogs. And there's this dog. It's a border collie. And they taught it a thousand words, or a thousand. They took a thousand toys, and all a thousand toys, that dog knew the name of each toy. And to show this, what they did is they piled the thousand toys in a pile in this house, and the scientist sat on the chair, and he asked the dog, he would go, go get, and he would say, like, Ralph, or, you know, whatever the name is, out of yeah. a selection of the toys. But actually, they did it in ten. I'm I'm sorry. The guy claimed that she knew a thousand words, but they randomly selected ten and they put ten on a pile, spread out so she could see him. And he'd be like, "Go pick Ralph." The dog would go get Ralph. Okay, go get Susie. She'd run. She'd get the toy that was associated with Susie. And to see if this dog could reason, or you know, to see how 
to prove that she knew those 10 names. Then they took a toy she didn't know and put it in with nine of the toys that she did know. And they were like, go get Einstein because it was a toy of Einstein. They're like, go get Einstein. You watch the sporter collie. She goes and looks at the toys and she hesitates and you can see her reasoning for a minute. I'm not even kidding. And she picks the toy that she doesn't know by the fact that she didn't know the name and she knew all the other ones. They're smarter than we give them credit. And I I just think that's amazing. I mean, you're right. They're smarter than we give them credit for. That's why, I mean, I wonder if how far, how really advanced are we in an evolutionary sense from dogs or dolphins? I mean, yes, we have a hard drive, but only because years and years of people worked out all this crazy science and wrote it down. Right. I mean, we teach ourselves from a young age. Who's to say if we didn't start, you know, if we started tomorrow breeding all the smartest dogs together over and over and over, and they have a short lifespan and a quick breeding rate, yeah. how long would it take for them to, you know, catch up? I mean, if a dog can have a thousand word vocabulary and birds can have high vocabulary, how many words is the average American's vocabulary? Oh, uh, I... I wouldn't even want to get into that. I mean, my vocabulary is not even that great, but I, I can't but even imagine. Think of, you know, you got to think of it in terms of like items you recognize. Like if think I have not that big, but you know, you know, speaker, you know, pencil, pen, hard drive, computer. It's, I mean, it's pretty big, but I wonder, I really do wonder what it would take to uh, selectively breed another species to force it to evolve. Well, you know what? They, on a much smaller scale, they've done it with uh, with bacteria, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially bacteria. That's a perfect example. I hadn't thought of that. They have done it. There's a group of scientists who made E. coli. They bred E. coli to smell like bananas. You're kidding. I swear to God. I mean, bacteria has always been my point where people that didn't believe in evolution were crazy. Because if you don't believe in evolution, you never need a new flu vaccine. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> but the flu and other bacteria, they reproduce so quickly, they evolve like like rabbits. It's just insane compared to us because we live so long. Yeah, it's just it's all about life, you know, lifespan. If something lives only for a few days, and which is the perfect thing to test evolution on, and which they have. And right. I mean, bacteria lives for a short time and, and recreates itself a lot. A lot. It can quickly adapt. That's why I cannot stress, if anyone doesn't believe in evolution, just give the book The Greatest Show on Earth a chance by Richard Dawkins, and I promise you, you'll understand it by the end of it. You might still choose not to believe in it, but hell, even the Catholic Church believes in it now, and they say it's true. So, I mean, it's indisputable. It Evolution is a real thing. It's not a theory, even though they call it a theory. It, it's real, you know? Yeah, I think theory confuses people. I mean... Gravity is a, a theory. There's gravitational theory. Right. People see that word and they think it means it's not true. Well, no, it's a term that means this is the workings of something. Right. And it can be, uh, they can show it to be to work. They can, you know, show you evidence of it working. Right. But, I mean, that's just scientists. They don't want to label something indefinite, you know? No, it's, it's the smart way literally it's a theory you never know for certain but you can know for 99.99 percent certain what if they proved an animal that we eat is conscious like we are like self-aware would we stop eating that animal you know uh, that's kind of interesting uh i read a philosophy book douglas hofstadter he uh he wrote a couple books about strange loops things that reference themselves and his newest one that I loved started with like 30 pages of why he was a vegetarian. And it was the weirdest thing ever. But it all went into, well, if you don't, if you're not a religious person and we're just kind of a logical brain, if the soul is really, our consciousness just really is our brain, then everything is conscious to a degree. It's just things that are, you know, small animals aren't as aware. You know, right. we don't feel bad hitting a mosquito. But at a certain point, you do hit that fuzzy area of 
Well, anybody will kill a mosquito. Most people will kill a spider. But when you hit like a cow or a horse, people get weird. Yeah. You know, you do wonder what kind of testing would it take to prove for people to uh, not be comfortable eating it? Or would it matter? I think a lot of, I think, uh, how do I say this? Like, I think scientifically literate people who would accept the fact that, hey, okay, this has been proven. These animals are, you know, they're very much self-aware. I think those kind of people would probably stop eating it. Probably. But I don't necessarily think, you know, the people, the history refuters and the people who don't believe in evolution and they don't read science papers and stuff like that, I don't think they would stop. And I think they would argue it, even if it was proven. I mean, if, if cows tomorrow turned out to be sentient and really knew what was going on... There would still be a hillbilly not. in the South going, fuck that, beef's great. So I, But you'd stop... I mean, I'd have a tough time, man. I'd love me a steak. <laughs> I think I would... Oh God, I don't know. I really do like a tenderloin every once in a while. <laughs> uh... I dated a vegetarian for like a year and a half and it was always kind of interesting to deal with just trying to think about like, you know, we do somewhere, we decide that, you know, we're better. I'm going to eat you. But at the same time, all of nature eats everything else it's capable of eating. I mean, any bug eats whatever their bug is smaller than it and they can get a hold of. There's large parts of history that I I have alternative views on, <laughs> I would say. How do you- I don't have a lot of confidence always in theories. I'm an, I'm an Atlantis believer. I'll throw it out there. Really? Yeah. I, uh, I read a, a book like a year or two ago a friend gave me, and it just completely convinced me. What's the name of the book? Uh, the anti... What was it? Atlantis, the anti-Diluvian world, is written in like the 1800s. Uh-uh. I'm not kidding you. Maybe early. No, it might be newer than that. What was this? That changed I, your outlook uh, on Atlantis? Uh, 1882, Ignatius Donnelly. Yeah, and it just, uh, it was interesting because it really opened my mind to the, the fact that history, you know, they'll give you a lot of theories. But they don't always have a lot of science to back it up. Well, I think I'm going to hop off here because I think I'm going to roam up to the bar up the road and get another beer because uh, it's 10 o'clock. All right, brother. Well, thanks for doing this. And uh, I will shoot you an email. I'll look around. If you see a show you want to do, let me know. If you don't, I'll shoot you in the next day or two. Yeah, no, I'll keep my eye out. And, uh, yeah, just email or Facebook message, whichever. All right, man. Take it easy. See you, dude. Night. Leaving explicit science.